Well, we're going to jump into uh, Hebrews chapter 8, um, thinking about this concept of uh, this heavenly priesthood um, that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I've got tons of material. I don't know how much I'll be able to get through. Um, so probably just going to walk down through the chapter, just starting with verse 1, walk through, uh, share um, some information as, as we work our way through it. And then if we don't quite get through, then we can pick up and do a, a part 2 of Hebrews chapter 8. Um, so you'll remember that uh, we've been talking about, uh, the whole book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ and how Christ is better than, uh, higher than the angels, uh, higher than any mankind, better than any covenant. Um, he's the answer to all things. And so he is the best, uh, last, and all of everything. And so, um, so eight begins to deal with how we have a high priest in heaven and how he is our heavenly high priest. Um, and so chapter seven talks about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Um, where chapter 8 begins talking about, again, this, this heavenly priesthood and what's different about that. But we get into some, um, if we get far enough, we're going to look at some of what's better about this new covenant than the old covenant and, and get a little technical about some of that stuff. Uh, be presented just like everything else. Very easy to understand and easy to, to apply, but I just, there's some areas we need to, to dig a little bit deeper in. So I'm just going to start with Hebrews. I'm going to read the first two verses, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So... Um, all right, Rodney, tell me there's no sound. Hello. Rodney, you hear anything now? I don't know if uh still don't have sound. So I'll wait. You can shoot me a comment. Uh, if, you, if you can hear me, if you'll let me know, I appreciate it. Um, if you can't hear me, I need to know that as well so I can fix that. All right, just waiting for a comment from someone that you can hear me. As I think I have everything on on this side. But I... Uh, Last week I did the entire message uh, lesson without any sound. And I had to go back and do the entire hour-long study again. So, um, yeah, if you can still no sound. Or can you hear me? Thank you, Myra. I appreciate you, lady. Uh, it's good to see you, hear from you. All right, we're just going to jump in then and... Uh, so if you don't have sound, it's, it's on your end, so you just uh, may need to turn uh, the mute off or turn your volume up. So we'll move into eight, just starting with the first two verses, thinking of Jesus as our high priest, and then we'll, we'll discuss just kind of a summary of these first two verses. Uh, now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in, heavens, in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. So just want to tackle this concept of how we serve a high priest who is actually seated on the real throne in the real sanctuary of God, and that's in heaven. So one of the main points I really want to, want to say is this. The writer's bringing together a couple of things 
But he's basically telling us this. Jesus is, in fact, our high priest. And he is seated at the right hand of majesty, which is the right hand of a, the right hand is a position of authority um, in uh, ancient writings. And even today, we, we still see a lot of that symbolism. But when you're seated at the right hand, it means you have a position of authority. And so Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means he has all authority. We know that Scripture teaches all authority has been given to him on heaven and, and earth by the Father. And so, uh, so this is the type of high priest that we serve. I go, go a little deeper into this notion of uh, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated, and the fact that he's seated um, represents victory. So, so the war that Christ came to fight on our behalf that we could be saved, that's completed. That's finished. There's no more work that needs to be done by Christ. And uh, this description of him seated at the right hand not only shows a, a, a position of power, but also demonstrates um, the victory that Christ already has. And so we serve a high priest in the heavenlies who is uh, all-powerful but has already won the battle, the war, the victory has been done as he declared it's finished. And so we see him seated. If not, we would see him standing at the right hand of the Father. So this is intentional by the writer of Hebrews. And so the fact that Jesus Christ is seated rather than standing means that the work of Christ has been completed. The payment of sin and death has been paid uh, once and for all by Christ. Now, talk a little bit about this, the true sanctuary. We're, we're still just in the first two verses uh, of Hebrews chapter 8. The, the true sanctuary is, is, is heaven, right? This is where God resides. This is where the, the presence of God is and the glory of God. Um, now, God allows some of his glory to be seen on earth. We would probably describe that as the majesty of God is, is what creation declares about the glory of God or the, the physical manifestation of God's glory. We may call that his majesty. It's where we see his glory in nature. And so the true tabernacle um, is where the presence of God abodes, which is the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary. Now, the, the first... Um, earthly sanctuary, we may say, um, more than likely would, would be considered the Garden of Eden. Uh, why, why would it be considered the Garden of Eden? Because God came down, the presence of God came down in the cool of the day. Um, some of the prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, declare Eden as the mountain of God. And so there seems to be this position of um, elevation, uh, which is, is very like the Temple Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. Um, so, so mountains always uh, refer to a place where God um, would come down. Uh, the Mount of Transfiguration is an example of that. But the first sanctuary would have been the Garden of Eden. There was one entrance, that entrance faced the east, just like the, the later tabernacle that Moses would be given instructions for would face the east, um, in the same way that the, the, the temple in Jerusalem faced east with, um, with this main opening that way. And so I think there's very little, there, there's very little argument between um, pastors and teachers. Um, we all see Eden as the first sanctuary of God. Now what we do see is the tabernacle is a representation both of what Eden was before corruption, before sin, um, and at the same time a representation of what heaven is like or the heavenly sanctuary where God, uh, His presence abides. And so Jesus, just what the writer here is saying is simply this, uh, that Jesus doesn't serve as a priest in an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple. 
He serves in the true tabernacle that the Lord himself erected, the original tabernacle made by God. Um, so again, what Moses was given in the tabernacle uh, was a, a plan, an outline, a blueprint, a copy of the original tabernacle, uh, which is heaven. And so um, I, I would just, uh, Exodus 25, 8, 9, if you, if you want to go back and read the instructions for the tabernacle to be built, uh, is where you'll find that. Uh, but so in, in just the verse 1 and 2, here's what we see, and I, I want to move on to, to verse 3. So verse 1 and 2 again, we, we have a high priest who is seated in the heavenlies, who is reigning in the true tabernacle, the original tabernacle created by God even before the Garden of Eden, uh, before the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness, before the temple of God in Jerusalem. Um, he is at the right hand of the Father, which means he's in a position of authority, and he is seated at the right hand, which means he's already won a victory, that the victory's already been won. The war essentially is already over. Uh, Christ has already done all that needs to be done to accomplish all that he intended to accomplish and all that needs to be done for us to be saved. So this is the type of high priest that we have. Again, we're in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, now just going to move to verse 3. For every high priest... Uh, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And, and so, what was it that made, what was the priestly duties? Um, according to the rite of Hebrews here, uh, the priest had duties where they made sacrifices and offerings to God on behalf of the people. And so, the priest mediated between God and man. He was a go-between. In the same way, Christ now is, is our mediator. He's our go-between. And so we come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ, our mediator. And so Christ, like all the priests of old, uh, had to make an offering, had to make some type of sacrifice on our behalf to God. And of course, we know that's the cross of Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ offered up himself. Philippians 2 is a beautiful passage about the, the character of Christ. And, uh, and it says that this, this word kenosis in Greek, which means to empty oneself. It says that, that we ought to have the mind of Christ who emptied himself and became um, lowly like a man, essentially. Even going to the very point of suffering and dying on a cross for our behalf. And so he offered the, the sacrifice, the sacrifice for sin. He offered that to God on our behalf. It, it just so happens that he offered himself as the sacrifice. And in that way, the sacrifice that Jesus made is far superior to the sacrifices made by the uh, previous priest. The previous priest would make uh, temporary sacrifices. And, and so someone would go in and they would bring a, and, uh, a sacrifice. And their faith in God, that God would deliver them from their sinfulness through the sacrifice. It, it was through faith that they were... Um, brought in good standing before God. And it also pointed to the one true sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, that would come eventually. And so the work of the Old Testament priest pointed to the work of Christ. And the work of Christ is that he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, presented it to God, uh, com literally completely died, right? Was buried, raised again to life by the very Holy Spirit that we have and this is the kind of high priest we have who was in the heavenlies. And so every high priest is appointed uh, to make these sacrifices. Uh, it's also, uh, so there's no better sacrifice. Let me just say this and we'll move on to verses 4 and 5. There's no better sacrifice that can be made 
than that sacrifice made by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, verses 4 and 5. We're just kind of walking through Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, again, I have t- tons of notes that I would like to share all with you. And I just can't. I know I'm not going to be able to. Uh, verse 4 and 5 says, now if, also, um, now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since they are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And so here we see Jesus' priesthood. Um, There was a temple in the Old Testament, but the temple of Christ is a better temple. It it is the true temple. It's the original temple. Um, If he were on earth, this is what I said, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. What, what does the writer mean by that? And I would just essentially say that um, Jesus was not qualified. Um, now, stay with me for a second. Jesus was not qualified to serve in the inferior earthly priesthood. Remember that the priesthood came from um, the lineage of Aaron. And, and the Levites came from the tribe of Levi. And Jesus came out of the tribe of Judah. And so Christ would not have been in this earthly flesh, in the earthly sense of, of the law of Moses, Christ would not have served as an earthly priest. All right, so just make sure you hear. I'm not saying he wasn't worthy. I'm not saying he wasn't perfect. I'm not saying he wasn't God. What I'm saying is that the commandments and statutes that were given to Moses, given to Moses, uh, would mean that Jesus Christ in his earthly form would not even qualify to be one of the priests. Only because he comes out of a different tribe. He comes out of the tribe of Judah. But what the writer reminds of, us of is, is this fact. That the things that we see here on earth are just shadows of the realities of heaven. And so the earthly priesthood was just a shadow of the eternal priesthood that would come in the form of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so here Jesus is our high priest, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, having offered himself a living sacrifice for the forgiveness and the remission of our sins. And he who would not have been qualified to serve as an earthly priest now serves as the eternal priest, uh, accepted by God, the offering he made, and that offering again, that of himself. And so just remember that uh, everything we see on earth, whether it be the tabernacles, the temples, the law, the Old Testament structures of things, uh, were meant to be a shadow or a copy of the original that God made. Now we know that that the earth is not going to be what God created it to be initially until he restores all things, until the earth is made new, uh, the heavens are made new, uh, and all things uh, essentially are made new. But what God did was he gave them a copy. For instance, he gave them, the Garden of Eden had been closed off. This was where the presence of God dwelled and where man could walk with with God. So what God did was gave them a copy. The copy was the tabernacle. And this allowed the priest, um, or well, Moses essentially, to begin with initially, to go into where the presence of God was on behalf of the people to the tent of meeting is where Moses would enter. Uh, to the very presence of God. And so we see that it, it's literally just a shadow, a copy of the heavenly things. And that's what the writer's saying in Hebrews 4 and 5. Um, don't want to drag it out too long, uh, but, but just to say uh, again, 
that first century Jews took tremendous pride in their temple uh, and did so for a good reason because it was uh, a spectacular architectural achievement. Um, it was built on the top of a mountain. And of course, you can only build as big as the top of the mountain is. What Herod the Great did uh, was he built archways that came out of the top of the mountain so that he made the top of the mountain flat so that the temple could be built on this huge flat surface. And it's just amazing architecturally uh, what Herod achieved there. Um, but the reason that it was so much care was given to the temple was it was the shadow of the dwelling place of God. It was the earthly representation of the throne room of God where the presence of God dwells. And so we see why they gave um, such emphasis to the temple, uh, rightly so. Verse 6 um, says this, But Jesus has now attained a superior ministry, uh, and to that degree he is the mediator. Now obtained superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been established on better promises. And so touched on this already, um, uh, how has he obtained a more excellent uh, ministry? No earthly priest ever could take away the sins of the world the way Jesus did. And so having this heavenly high priest, as opposed to the earthly priesthood, we know, we know that's better, but just why is it better? One reason is because no earthly priest could offer sacrifice for the sins of man the way Jesus Christ did. They had to use a substitute, a, a sacrificial lamb. Jesus offered himself. And, and so that's why the, the ministry and the priesthood of Jesus Christ is so much more superior to that of the law of Moses. Um. Yeah, let's just let's go into uh, in, into chapter seven. I, I don't want to um, get bogged down too much in details and a lot of minutia and minute things. So now uh, we we've addressed the topic of Jesus Christ as our um, heavenly priest, and, and now we're looking at the superior covenant that we now have through Jesus Christ. And so here here's what I want to do. I think just in order to try to work through the the material. I want to read verses 7 through 13 and, and would encourage you to, to read along with me in your copy of God's Word. And, and then I just want to start working through uh, what the writer uh, of Hebrews is, is actually uh, saying. Verse 7, 4, If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. For the least to the greatest of them. For I will give their wrongdoing, and I will, I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. Verse 13 says, By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. So I just want to kind of walk through this, um, this passage here of this notion of a uh, superior covenant uh, that we have um, Starting in verse 7. 
And so just in verse 7, kind of we'll walk through, I'll just make this note. Um, the fact that God mentions there's another covenant, it proves that there was, it doesn't prove there was something lacking in the covenant, it, it proves there was something lacking in man. And so here's what I would say. When God gave the old covenant, it was to point us to Christ, but, but the covenant was sufficient for the covering of sins. The problem is man could not keep God's laws. Man could not keep the covenant. And so the, the first covenant wasn't full of faults. In fact, it would have been faultless if man could have kept it. But because man could not keep the covenant God made and gave through the law of Moses, then God had to bring about a, a second covenant, a new covenant, a better covenant. And this time the covenant doesn't depend on the actions of man. It depends on the work of Christ. That, does that mean that we're not responsible for the way we... No, of course we are. We have responsibilities if we call ourselves Christians, if we uh, call ourselves the children of God, if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, then we certainly have responsibility uh, to walk in that manner, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. But the covenant that Christ uh, established, this, this new covenant established by the blood of Jesus Christ, affirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is a covenant that's not based on man's abilities to keep the law, but based on the faultless, sinless, perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. So our second covenant, or the new covenant in Jesus Christ, the covenant of grace, is a superior covenant, not because the first one was inferior, but because man could not keep the covenant of God. And now we have a covenant based on the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, rather than on our deeds or what we're able to provide or bring to the table. So in, uh, it, it's just in the nature of man to, to come up with things um, that are new but not needed, um, but not, not with God. And so God gave a covenant that man failed to keep. And because of our failure to keep the covenant, then God has issued a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Verses 8 through 12 talk about uh, this new covenant, and, uh, and there's a quote there, and that quote is from Jeremiah 31. Um, verses 31 through 35 is what we read in Hebrews 8, um, as verses 8 through 12. And um, let, let's, this issue of finding fault. Um, in the passage, God shows that something... Uh, was lacking in the new new covenant. Here's what, I've already addressed this, I just want to make sure I reiterate it before I move on. Essentially what was missing in the old covenant was our ability to keep it. Uh, it was our inability uh, to do all that God commanded us to do and to live how God commanded us to live. And therefore, if the law of God uh, requires perfect obedience to the law, then we've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned and we're all in desperate need of a Savior. And so the new covenant is not doing away with the old covenant. It is fulfilling the old covenant in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, our high priest, the sacrifice he offered himself was the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. And so you can read uh, into Jeremiah. You can see a lot more. Um, in fact, Jeremiah writes, and, and it's quoted here, Behold, the days are coming. Uh, we see that in these four verses. In the context of Jeremiah's prophecy, uh, this is probably a reference to um, the days of Josiah's renewal 
uh, of a covenant after finding the law in 2 Kings 23. You'll remember that they found the law, they renewed the law, they read the law, and the people just stood out all day long just to hear the word of God. The law of God read. Um, and, and it was getting late, and, and they're tired, but the people, was just, they were hungry for the, the law of God to be read, and they just stayed. And, um, man, I wonder if we have that same burning passion for the Word of God today. If we could just literally come into the pulpit and just open God's Word and just read what God's Word is, allow God's Word to accomplish what it's meant to do, uh, that every day we were digging into God's Word, that we were just uh, submersing ourselves into it, um, that God may speak to our hearts and renew our minds and change us. Uh, but that is the uh, kind of the, the context in, um, in Jeremiah's quote is, is the, from the 23rd chapter of Set uh, Kings, and, uh, and it is the renewal of God's covenant where they find the, the book of the law uh, and read it. Uh, to the congregation, to the people. Um, the Lord made it clear that, that this covenant uh, would originate with God and not with man. Uh, at Sinai, under the old covenant, the key words were this. If you look in, in Exodus 19, um, the covenant continues to repeat these words, if you. And, and so the old covenant was based on what we could do. And that's why when we read in the Old Testament about the law, there are these two words that, that come before. If you do this, if you do that, if you obey these things. Um, the, the new covenant is not built in what we do, but the new covenant is built in the words, I will, where God is saying, I will do these things. I will take care of these things. I will meet these expectations. Um, I will become the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so that's, that's just one particular difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the Old Covenant is, best in, is based in what God said to man was, if you man will do these things, where the New Covenant God says to man, I will do these things. And so we see that's a far superior covenant where God is the one who is working it out than the Old Covenant where it was dependent upon man to work it out. Uh, the New Covenant, it, it's truly new. It, it wasn't just like a renovation of the law. It wasn't taking what was given to Moses and just tweaked. It was literally a, a brand new covenant that God made, a new and improved covenant. Uh, today, uh, we'll, we'll sometimes see products advertised as new and improved um, when there is no substantial difference, literally, between the product. Uh, we will see first edition, second edition, third edition, fourth edition of books when essentially the author's only changed a few notes in the books or a few references or uh, edited a, a few things. Uh, essentially the same book, edited several times. But when, when God brings about new, when God declares a new covenant, God declares something new and improved, then it is brand new. And so this new covenant is brand new. What are we, well, there are two ancient Greek words. I guess I just want to share this with you so that you understand uh, why, why I make that, um, I guess, just point that out to you. Uh, two ancient words. One is neos, um, and it's, it means new, but it's in regard uh, to newness in time. So something new in time. Um, and then there's this ancient Greek word called kainos, or kainos. And kainos means um, not only new in reference to time, but truly new in its quality. 
So, so if we're talking about the, the Greek word used for new, that there's a couple options. One is neos, which means something is new in regard to time. And, and then, so like we have a new baby, right? It's a baby who was born after our previous child. Uh, we bought a new car. It's a new car because we had a car before it. Um, that's not the word that God uses in Scripture to describe His covenant. Like we had a covenant before, now this is just simply new in time. Um, the word is uh, kanos, which means not only is it new in time, but it's new in quality. So it comes after the old covenant, but it's completely different in quality from the old covenant. Um, and so that's the word that's used. And so I think it's important when we have... Um, Something uh, characteristic like that where it sticks out that there's just such an emphasis on a particular Greek word that, that we have to point that out. Uh, of course, I had to study that and research that. I don't just speak Greek off the cuff. and so, uh, But I just think that's an important point that needs to be made. Um, he talks about this uh, covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we know that the new covenant definitely began with Israel. Um, but it's never intended to end with Israel. Whether you're talking about Matthew 15, 24, Acts 1, 8, the Great Commission, or whether you go all the way back to Abraham where God says, I'm going to bless you with uh, innumerable descendants, and through your family, the whole world will be blessed. And so even though this new covenant starts with Israel, it's never intended to end with Israel. Uh, and what we see is that work being picked up by the, the apostles, um, started by the Apostle Paul taking the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So it begins with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, but it doesn't end there. Uh, the, the text also says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. This is not a covenant like God made with the patriarchs. Uh, again, it emphasized, the emphasis here by the writer in Hebrews and also in Jeremiah is that this is a brand new covenant. This is something totally different than what we've seen before. Now, I wish that I could cover all these um, things with you, but here's what I, I think here's where I just want to spend the last few minutes we have together. And, and anytime you would like to see um, my study notes or, or PowerPoints, they're certainly available to you if you um, direct message me or Facebook message me or text me. Uh, if you send me an email address, I'll be more than happy to, to send you my notes. Um, because I never get through all my notes. Uh, you, you might think I would just start producing less notes, um, but, but I, I'm not that disciplined. So, so what I would like to do, I think, is to spend the, the rest of the time we have um, tonight looking at, uh, I believe I've listed, uh, and of course uh, most pastors will have uh, relatively about the same number, about 17 um, facts that distinguish the old covenant, the law of Moses, and the new covenant, what we find through Christ Jesus in grace. And so I just want to spend a few times uh, kind of giving a point one, point two. This, this is the, the difference. Um, so let's start with the first, the obvious thing. Um, so when the, the Greek word kainos is used to describe time and quality, then of course it means that one comes after the other. Uh, the Old Covenant was established roughly around 1,500 years before Christ. Um, so that, that's not exact. I think it's 1,466 B.C., something like that. So roughly 1,500 years before Jesus is when Moses receives the law. 
of course, uh, the new covenant is established in either A.D. 30 or A.D. 33, according to which dating you use for the crucifixion of Christ. And I'm okay using A.D. 33. Um, the second is that they were instituted in different places. And I think this is um, obvious, too. That, so I told you that earlier, the first temple on earth was Eden. The second temple or complex where God dwelt was the tabernacle. And then we have the first and the second temples um, in, in the history of the Jewish people. Um, and we see these covenants established as... Uh, typically in, on mountains where God descends and like a cloud comes upon the mountain. And so the Old Covenant, it was Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up and the presence of God comes down and, and gives him the law uh, that he's to pass on to, um, to the Hebrews. Uh, for the New Covenant, it took place at Mount Zion. Uh, not only was the Lord Jesus tried around the temple complex, but again, the temple complex had been built on Mount Zion. Um, and so it's pretty neat. Typically, uh, there is, by the way, there is a literal place, Mount Zion, that's just um, around the temple complex today. Uh, but the reference of Mount Zion uh, is also a reference to the mountain of God. And so sometimes you'll be reading and you see Mount Zion a lot or you hear talk of Zion. Um, and, and I would just say this. Typically, the use of Zion is not to this geographic hill, mountain in Jerusalem, but to... Jerusalem, the holy mountain of God. Uh, by the way, there's only uh, one street that separates the temple complex uh, from Mount Zion. And so it is, it's right um, there where the temple um, used to stand. Uh, the third thing is they're spoken of in different ways. And so scripture speaks of the old covenant and the new covenant in different ways. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. Um, I don't know if you need a pen or you need to go back and watch this um, in like slow motion or something. So I'm not meaning to, to throw too much, but there's just so much about um, the new covenant that we now experience through Jesus Christ and the old covenant that we find in the time period of Jesus, um, in the Jewish people, in the disciples, what, what the disciples had been taught and had been raised as was the covenant God had with them. And then the new covenant experienced uh, through Jesus Christ. They're spoken of in different ways. The Old Covenant was, um, you'll remember that there was great fear and dread as the thunder uh, rolled, I guess, uh, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, declares the New Covenant with love and grace. And so even the notion of how they're presented and received uh, are two completely different types of covenants. And so the Old Covenant received in fear as the very presence of God thundered over Mount Sinai and the New Covenant established in the blood of Jesus Christ who went like a lamb to the slaughter without uttering a word. Uh, four, different mediators between God and men. So the New Covenant was given. Moses was the mediator between God and the people. Of course, in the New Covenant, Jesus is our mediator between ourselves and God. They're also different in their subject matter. Now, these may be, they may seem like oversimplifications, or they may seem like just a bunch of random points, but they really fit together to paint a picture that the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 is trying to get his point across to us, how much greater the new covenant in Christ is, how much greater that Christ as a high priest is, and then the superiority of this new covenant. And so I think it's important to take time to run through just um, some literal differences that we see of the way Scripture describes the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
Uh, so they were different who mediated, Moses with the old, Jesus with the new. They're also different in subject matter. The old covenant demanded a covenant of works. And so it was based on the works of man. It was based on a sacrificial system. It was based on a bunch of laws. It was based on a bunch of ordinances. There was civil law. There was ceremonial law. There was uh, you know, um, a religious law. It was a theocracy. And, um, and so the old covenant was this demand that we had to do something to keep and to earn our salvational relationship with God where the new covenant fulfills the covenant of works and therefore declares that the works have been completed and finished. And so now, our hope in this new covenant is Jesus Christ. Good news, friend. Jesus never fails you. Jesus never failed anyone. And Jesus has already defeated all things. Remember, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews starts this chapter by saying Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means he is victorious over all things and sits in a position of authority. Um, number six, uh, they're different in how they were dedicated, how, how they came about. Uh, in the Old Covenant, in Exodus 24, chapter 24, uh, verses 5 through 8, uh, the Old Covenant was dedicated by the blood of animals sprinkled on the people. Uh, I know maybe to us New Testament Christians that sounds kind of a uh, I don't know, occultic or, or, or something like that. But this is how God established the covenant. We have the, the remission of sins, right? For the forgiveness of sins, there has to be innocent blood. And, and so in God's system, it was the blood of spotless lambs and, and other sacrifices as substitutes for us until the ultimate substitute, Jesus Christ, would come along and be our substitutionary atonement. So the Old Testament, the people are sprinkled with the blood of animals and in the New Testament it's dedicated with Jesus's blood being shed on the cross going to the flogging and the beating uh, the crown of thorns placed upon his head um, all the suffering uh, the blood you, you just imagine the blood running down the body in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ I'm really intrigued with the shroud of Turin if you're not it's it's definitely doesn't have anything to do with Hebrews chapter 8 um, but, but you see this um, image of a man who had been beaten, a uh, crown of thorns had been placed on his hand. You, you see the blood spots on the wrist and the, the feet. And you see the, the blood stains where on his back he had been whipped and beaten. Um, I, I just encourage you, you need to read and, and watch some documentaries on the Shroud of Turin. It is, it's, it's really neat stuff. Uh, Several years ago, I would probably say, I don't know, there's maybe a 50-50 chance that the Shroud of Turin is authentic. It is the bare cloth of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. A shroud is the, the burial cloth of Jesus. Uh, after uh, a lot of research, after taking some classes with um, Dr. Gary Habermas, um, who's probably the definitive expert on the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and just been an honor uh, to be able to be in his classes, uh, I, I would put uh, the reliability of the Shroud of Turin uh, probably 95% in my mind uh, settled that it, it is the actual burial garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that I'm a mathematics and physics major. I'm very logically minded and I love science. I don't think it, it contradicts religion. In fact, science is much earlier than religion and just needs some time to catch up to what God's already declared to us in his word. And uh, I have great confidence that science will eventually always prove what God's word has already said. 
But we see in that blood of Jesus, this is how the new covenant is dedicated, which is a lot different than the blood of an animal being sprinkled on the people in the Old Testament in Exodus, and the blood of Jesus used for the covering of our sins in the new. Uh, next, they're different in their priest, right? This is essentially what the, the beginning of chapter 8 is about in Hebrews, is the old covenant is represented by the priesthood uh, of the law of Moses. Remember that the high priest des descended from the brother of Moses, Aaron, and the priesthood and the Levites who took care of the tabernacle came from the, the tribe of Levi. Uh, again, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Um, so in the Old Testament, that's where our, the high priest would be chosen from the line of Aaron. They would serve their duties. They would draw lots. They would be assigned at different times to do different services at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they would finish their service. It would be complete. They would go back to, their, to wherever they may live, maybe not even live in Jerusalem, but uh, surrounding areas. Um, the new covenant uh, has our high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. He mediates between us and God. It's just, um, excuse me, it's just kind of, I was sharing with our with church this morning that, um, so we're doing Hebrews on Sunday night and Wednesday night, but um, we, we did Genesis uh, we started with the first 13 chapters of Genesis and did a study. Now we're doing a study on the life of Abraham called A Journey of Faith. Uh, we're in, uh, I think we were in Genesis 14 this morning. 14 is where Abraham goes out, uh, fights the kings of, um, uh, that had taken Lot, um, Abraham's nephew off and all his possessions. And they, they come back and they're nearing Salem and Hebron and some other places like that. And Melchizedek comes out who is the priest and king. Uh, of you know, Salem, which is um, eventually becomes Jerusalem. And how here in our Bible study on Sunday nights, we're exactly where we are in our uh, services on Sunday morning. And I wish I could take credit and say I planned that, but of course uh, I don't plan that well. Um, so, so we have a priest of the order of Melchizedek, that is an eternal priest without beginning, without end, without origin, eternal, and also a kingly priest. Um, the, the old covenant and the new covenant are also different. I think that's seven. I've given you number eight. Um, they're different in their sacrifices. Right? The old uh, covenant demanded endless and uh, repetitious uh, uh, of imperfect, repetition of imperfect sacrifices. So because the sacrifices weren't worthy uh, of the standard of God, they were temporary, and so they had to be done over and over and over again. The new covenant provides a once and for all perfect sacrifice, the very Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. This is why the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Number nine, they're different in how and where they were written. The old covenant was written by God on tablets of stone. The new covenant is written by God on the hearts of his people. I share with you that uh, one of my favorite verses, and, and, and really it's just become a prayer for me now, is I have to be very careful um, because um, my personality is very straightforward sometimes, and um, I have to be careful to notice um, the needs of people. And, and if you tell me that everything's good in your life, I'm probably not going to pick up on it if it's not. It's why um, I know that, that God's called Sonia and I together as a husband and wife. One, 
uh, into ministry together because um, she is definitely my better half when it comes to recognizing that people may be hurting. But So I pray constantly, uh, God, would you take the heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, which is exactly what God declared he would do in the Old Testament. And so we see that in how that uh, the sacrifices um, leading up to, to the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ laying his life down, they're just written differently. The old were written on tablets of stone, and the new are written on hearts of flesh. Uh, we, we see the love and the grace and the mercy and the justice of God. And, uh, and it's got to be a heart thing, man. It can't just be a head thing. And that's, that's what I mean when I say that they're written differently. The, the covenant of grace is written on our hearts. Where the Old Testament law was written on tablets of stone. And so when we see that, that passage that says, I'll take the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, it is I'll take the old covenant and give you a new covenant. What a beautiful picture, I think, to be painted there. Number 10, they're different in their goals. So the, the old covenant, the goal was to discover sin, uh, to condemn it, and to set a fence around it. So essentially, it, it wasn't to abolish sin in our life. It, it didn't do that. What it did was, it, it, it caused you to reflect in your life, to look and to see where you had failed God, to recognize your sin, to discover your sin, to condemn that sin, to, to, um, to try to put it to rest, at least put a fence around it in the terminology I think that a lot of the Old Testament passages would use concerning the law is this notion of fencing things in. Uh, the very tabernacles themselves were fenced in. There were three different areas within uh, the tabernacle, also the, the temple as well as the Garden of Eden. Um, and so um, the goal of the Old, Co Old Covenant, just try to keep sin at bay and make temporary sacrifices um, for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, the goal of the new covenant through Jesus Christ is to declare love, grace, the mercy of God, to give repentance and remission of sin, to, to bring eternal life through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not, the old covenant was kind of meant to take an old man and to make him a better man. An old woman. Not in age. The old woman and to make the new woman a better woman. What, what do I mean by that? Well, well, the laws were meant for us to work out, in a sense, our salvation through what God had already given, the, the, the commands that God had given. And, and so it, it allowed people to see their sin and then in their own effort to try to work to better themselves. The New Testament is completely different. The New Testament, the new covenant of God, is not to take old men and make them better, or old women and make them better. It's to take the old man and the old woman and to make them new women and new men. And so the new covenant changes us completely. We have a whole new mindset. We have a whole new heart. We still have flesh, and we still live in, uh, in, in a sinful world, and we still fell and fall. But what Jesus came to do was to deliver us from sin, not just to contain our sin. And so the law was meant to give us an ability to work out those, those areas in our life. Um, number 11, I'm trying to work through these. I'm going to go for about five more minutes and then, and then I'll uh, 
kind of call it a night and, and hopefully I can get through with these. Um, they're, they're different in their, their practical effect um, on living. The old covenant ends in bondage. The law of Moses ends with man understanding we can't save ourselves. We are bound by the law. We can't do enough good. The new covenant provides true freedom. Right? It's when I express the fact that I'm a sinner. It's when I'm willing to, uh, to pour out my heart before God and say, God, I'm a failure. Like Christianity is the only relationship with God-driven religion that you come into right relationship with God when you admit that you can't do everything on your own, when you admit that you failed, when you admit that you're a sinner. All these other work-based things, going back even to the old covenant God made with the, with the Hebrews, was based on you trying to work it out, you becoming better. It wasn't this, um, man, this true freedom that we have in Christ. Just freedom to be who we are. It, one of the most disappointing things for me, and, and I think we see it in a lot of our churches, I'm not, I'm not calling my church out, I'm not calling your church out, I'm just simply saying, one, one of the things that we see in churches is people afraid to be who they are. Right, we, we have this, if there's one place you ought to be able to come, it ought to be to the house of God without trying to put on a good face that you have everything together and that everything's perfect in your life. The truth of the matter is none of us live in that uh, rose-colored world. We live in a world that's fallen, broken. Our families struggle. Our, our relationships go up and down. The only thing that's constant in our life is Jesus Christ. And that's where our freedom comes in because our freedom and eternal life is based on the work of Jesus Christ, not ours. Complete freedom in Jesus Christ. Number 12, they're different uh, in their giving of the Holy Spirit. So, so how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant is completely different than how the Holy Spirit functions and works in the New Testament or the Covenant of Grace. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's given to certain people for certain specific duties, like a prophet to declare the Word of God, uh, like King Saul before he becomes king. And then we see him lose the, the Holy Spirit of God and his, his uh, just evil spirit seem to, to take up residence there as the Spirit of God falls now on the anointed King David. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit's poured out freely to all who receive Jesus Christ by faith. All of us have the Holy Spirit. It's not a temporary thing for a specific work. It is an everyday thing where God is walking in relationship with me, where he has complete control of my life, and where all I've been called to do is surrender myself to the will and the work of the Holy Spirit of God through the finished work of the cross of Christ. They're different in their substance. The Old Testament is full of vivid shadows. It's like pointing us to something. When I say full of shadows, I, I don't mean something shady. I mean, when we look at the law of the Old Testament, it's pointing us to Jesus Christ. When we look at the Garden of Eden, it's pointing us to Jesus Christ. When we look at the ark that, that saves Noah, God's chosen one, we see a picture of Jesus Christ. When we see Isaac taken up to be offered uh, by his father Abraham, we see a picture of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament. Uh, we, we see Melchizedek, priest and king of Salem. We see a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I can go on and on and on uh, that the Old Testament is but a shadow of what's to come. The New Testament is the reality. It's when Jesus came. 
And now, all those things that were shadows pointing toward the reality of Jesus have been fulfilled. It's why he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, they're different in the extent of their administration. What, what do I mean that? that? The Old Covenant was confined to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob according to the flesh. So the covenant was made with Abraham and his descendants. The new covenant, now listen, don't forget the old, in the Old Testament, Abraham's told, I'm making a covenant with you so that your descendants and the whole world might be blessed through you. So it's, 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 it's for all. But the new covenant extends to all nations and races under heaven. It is the one thing that should bind all of us together who call ourselves children of God and followers of Christ. There should be nothing in this world to separate us from complete love and acceptance of one another than Jesus Christ. He's enough. All the other stuff that pointed us in the right direction were but shadows, but Jesus is a reality. And if Jesus is a reality, then there has to be a real change in my life. They're different in what they actually accomplish. Uh, in the old covenant, nothing is made perfect. But in the new covenant, we see God is perfecting his people, perfecting his bride. And then last, uh, number 17, uh, they're different in their duration. Uh, the old covenant was designed to prepare the way for the new covenant. And then uh, to pass away as a principle of God's dealing with man. But the new covenant was designed to last forever. Uh, let me just leave you with a quote. I, I, I read, I really like John Owen. I like a lot of Puritan um, theology and, and just personal reading time. I love to read about the Puritans and um, they're just uh, they're writing something completely different than I, I found anywhere else. Uh, John Owen said this, and I want to leave you with this and then um, I kind of bid you a good night. John Owen said, let us observe from these things that the state of the gospel or of the church under the New Testament being accompanied by the highest privileges and advantages that it is capable of in this world, there is a great obligation on all believers unto holiness and fruitfulness and obedience, unto the glory of God and the heinousness of their sin, by whom this covenant is neglected or despised, is abundantly manifested. John Owen is pouring out here this, this beautiful picture of how great a salvation we have in Jesus Christ. God help us not to get used to Jesus. But that he would be new every day. That his mercies would be new every day. That his grace would be experienced new every day. And that the gospel message would be taken to people who are lost every day. I pray this has encouraged your heart. I, I, again, um, there's a whole lot that could go into Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, there's a lot that I've had to skip through in, in my notes. And, uh, and I apologize if it's been a little scattered and all over the place. Um, but I just want to give you the, the biggest bang for your buck to, uh, to go through it. And to um, I think it's important to talk about Jesus as our heavenly high priest. But then I think it's essential that we demonstrate the superiority of the new covenant we have in Jesus Christ by our faith in him through grace through the grace of God and how much better that is
than a covenant where my salvation is dependent on my works. I pray God would bless you with a wonderful week. I ask that you continue to um, pray for Jerusalem Project that's going to begin tomorrow morning as students from, um, from various churches. We're going to be working in our community to, to show the love of God to other people. And uh, so I pray that if there be any homeowners or those that we're doing work for who don't know Christ, they would see the love of Christ in the action of our students. I'm so thankful for church where um, we have so many adults who volunteer to lead a crew, to be a crew, a crew encourager, to drive a van, to pick up parts and deliver parts that are needed. So I just pray that you would be in prayer for our entire community as our young people uh, um, guided by some of our um, more w wise, older adults will be led in, um, in demonstrating love of Christ through action this week. So I pray you have a great week. Pray that God bless you. Thanks so much for watching. If you think someone would, would gain something for this, share it with them. Uh, let's not set on it, but let's, uh, let's get the word out. Uh, it just amazes me the depth of God's word, and I pray that it encourages you. Thanks, and again, pray you have a blessed day.